today's podcast is sponsored by Brain FM. Now, Brain FM is something that I pretty much use every single day. Since downloading it over a year ago, it's my go-to to get work done, to be able to focus. But not only that, it helps me relax, fall asleep, meditate. It has so many different effects and it has so many different ways of using it. It's one of the best things I have at my disposal, one of the best tools, especially when you've got ADHD. And the most fascinating thing about Brain FM is that it's all about non-invasive neurostimulation. And they are pushing towards an adjustment of the brain state through sound, light, and touch, as well as dynamic stimulation through biosensors. And for the first time in history, they are seeing that the understanding and ability to shape our brain activity for the better and to support anyone anywhere. And Brain FM believes that the different brain, we have different brain, so I'm going to say this again. Brain FM believes that different brains have different needs and that understanding a person is key to helping them. And this is exactly what they do. They have different effects. They have different types of music, different types of stimulation. So you can really choose what works for you. So some days I really feel like I need some classical with some forest sounds with an undercurrent of water and that delivers to me. And for whatever reason, to do with all the neurostimulation, it genuinely helps me get what I need to do done. I put my phone on aeroplane mode and my focus is really high. So I wanted to share with you a 20% discount for Brain FM. For you to download this, head to the show notes of today's podcast and put in ADHD Women's Wellbeing, the code, and you will get 20% off. Um, I'll also put a link there so it goes straight through as well. So if you head to the show notes, you'll get all the information there. And the code is ADHD Women's Wellbeing. Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. So hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast and today I have got a guest all the way in a very remote area in Australia. We've just been talking where it is. It's in an area called Denmark, Australia, which I'd never heard of. We've just been chatting off, off camera about it and my fantastic guest is a copywriter. She is a public speaker. Um, she is also a TEDx speaker and her name is Martha Bernard Ray. So Martha, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk talk to you, especially all about your TEDx talk, which was held in Kinjarling, which is in West Western Australia. So welcome. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. So lovely to meet you. So Martha, tell me, first of all, it's an amazing opportunity to be able to speak and do a TEDx talk. And I know that your um, your talk is on YouTube. It's had over 800,000 views. It's a great talk and it, it's all about ADHD in women. And I know that you as a copywriter, you love distilling things down and simplifying things into sort of a manner that we can understand that the people who maybe don't have a clue about ADHD in women 
can get it. And that's exactly what I think you achieved in, in the TEDx talk. I want to be able to just touch on something that you talked about in the talk straight away, which made me kind of laugh, but also kind of put my head in my own hands because I've been there. And it's when you talk about losing a 35 litre tub that you went specifically to the homeware store to buy and you forgot it and came home without it. And in a way, I know it's that's not ADHD in everything, but in a way, just that story alone really kind of hones in on the sometimes funny parts of ADHD, but often embarrassing, humiliating, shameful parts of like, how could we forget something that enormous? Like we went to go and get it. So tell me a little bit about how you got to where you got to getting your ADHD diagnosis and then going on stage and talking about it. I thought you were going to say, tell me how you lost a 35 liter tub. <laughs> we can get to that. That's absolutely yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for all those nice things that you said about my TED talk. Um, something about me is I own a business. I'm a copywriter and I've been doing that um, for just about four years and before that, I was a teacher. So I was an English teacher. And so that's part of the communication thing for me, I think. And the experience of being a teacher in this very remote place, like I worked, my school was 70 kilometers away from my house. Um, and I was telling you earlier, Kate, about the weird job that my husband has, which is he's called a community paramedic. And he's all of the ambulance officers outside of cities in Western Australia are run by volunteers. So it's his job to train the volunteers and support them. And then also to go to like the bad accidents. So his job is really all over the place and he works weird hours. And so I was teaching, I had two kids, I was driving 70 kilometers and 70 kilometers back. And then I had to like cook dinner. And I'm like, this is impossible. <laughs> and I, at one point, I just sort of thought, I think that this is, it shouldn't be this hard. And so that was like sort of the first time that I thought I can change something about this. I can, because I have ADHD, I was like, I can start a business. And so I kind of was like, what can I do to get out of this situation and make this better? Um, but, but that sort of history of being a teacher, I think allowed me to be able to communicate stuff better. Um, but a really important piece of that is like when I started running my own business, um, you know, there's a big difference between like working in a Christian school and running your own business. So I found it very empowering to be able to be completely myself in my business rather than having to like, keep my opinions of, uh, you know, things that we weren't allowed to talk about in a Christian school. I'm not religious. You know, we had to keep those opinions to ourselves. So a really big thing that I was doing on my sort of Instagram and stuff was standing up for things that I believed in. And a really big thing that I believe in is supporting marginalized groups and supporting, um, you know, people who maybe have less of a voice. And, and I think that with the knowledge that I kind of have from from my life, I can help people who are in a position of privilege like me mm -hmm. realize that like not everybody lives like you. So so I did that a bit. And so then when I found out that I had ADHD, I was like, 
what? Like, I was just like, how have I gotten to the age of 39 in a, you know, I grew up in Canada. I live in Australia. There's socialized medicine here. I had two educated parents. Like, so if I can get to this age without getting diagnosed, the chance of someone who doesn't have all the opportunities I have suffering even more because of not being diagnosed with ADHD is huge. So like what I was trying to do is sort of communicate like, this is what it is. And it's a really big deal. Like I am a grown-up. I'm a woman. I own a business. I've, you know, I've got a master's degree. I've done all these successful things and I have ADHD. And I thought like, maybe this can challenge like what people think about ADHD. So that's sort of why I started doing it. Yeah. And I I hear this a lot. Like a lot of women sort of are surprised because they kind of think, well, you know, I've got, I'm educated and I've got this and I've just about managed to hold my life together. And like surely, and you know, the stigma and the taboo and the old stories of ADHD kind of come back and go, well, surely I would have known if I had ADHD, you know, surely there would, something would have been flagged up. And I know that you, you Mm. talk about in your TED talk about um, your maths, really struggling with maths and not remembering your times tables. And for me, that was a great source of shame. I just couldn't get maths. I just wouldn't retain. It wouldn't go in. Um, And I see that again with some of my daughters as well. They really struggle with maths. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you then became a teacher. You said that your, your mum was a teacher. And thankfully from what I sort of understood from your talk is that your mum was really understanding and really managed to help you move through the education system. What does she do? that helped you or, or maybe it helped you um, harness your strengths or maybe not beat yourself up that you found maths difficult? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like I, I didn't struggle in school. I only struggled with math. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like, I'm bad at everything. It was like, I'm good at things and I'm bad at math. Mm-hmm. So it was two kind of different like facts so I think the do- the GP that sort of worked out that I had ADHD, you know, because I was even questioning, like, I didn't really struggle in school. Like, I, I just, but then I also don't know, like, how much another person struggled, mm-hmm. right? So, so, like, when I was doing stuff that I was good at, like the arts and, you know, writing an essay, it's easy. And so like, as you get further into education, you have more agency and you get to choose what you do. I was really good at English, so I did an English degree. And so like school wasn't hard because yeah, I wasn't that good at math, but like my parents could afford a tutor Mm -hmm. and they could, you know, my mom was a teacher and a principal. And when I didn't understand it, she like sat with me and helped me, right? So those are the things she did, but I think it was less about the strategies or whatever that she used and more about an understanding that like being bad at math doesn't make you a useless lump. You're good at lots of other things. So it's, and so the the doctor, what I was sort of wanting to say was the doctor that I saw was like lots of girls and women kind of get through school and it's all okay because you have like ways to work around it. And then you get to the point after you have kids that all of the strategies that you put in place stop working because the demands that are placed on you outweigh your ability to work around them. Truly, I I didn't feel in school like, oh, you know, why can't I do this, right? Because I had a lot of success, but it was like, 
becoming a grown up and like trying to do all of the adulting, which is just like the boringest, worst thing ever. And then having the responsibility of like having a job, cooking the food, running a household, doing all the things was just too much. So and that's when it really became a problem. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. I think lots of people do as well. It's just that it's that the mounting of the responsibilities and caring for other people. And then, like you say, very often it's just that one thing that tips us over. And, you know, sometimes we don't have that knowledgeable GP. Sometimes we don't have the privilege of a supportive family and we can go round and round in circles just going, what's wrong with me? There's something wrong with me. Well, and you that's know? what I did. Like I was diagnosed with anxiety mm-hmm. after, so my oldest child is 10 and I was diagnosed with anxiety when he was one and then spent the next seven or eight years thinking I have anxiety, but it like I did, I went back to the doctor. I was like, I don't think I have anxiety. Like mm-hmm. I'm not anxious. Yeah. <laughs> And the doctor would say things, you know, I went to a bunch of different doctors and, you know, they'd be like, have you tried yoga? And I'm like, have you tried like shutting the fuck up? I don't know. Sorry. I don't know. You're if allowed to swear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Swear away. <laughs> um, it was. It's just this like thing of like woman, successful children, anxiety. Mm. Yeah. And so what ended up happening is like I was with my my best friend and I was so distressed about the stomach problems that I was having and the stupid advice I was getting from GPs. And it was like around Christmas time and her brother-in-law and sister-in-law were visiting and they're both doctors. And he was like, I'm a doctor, like make an appointment with me. Maybe I can help. And he was the one. So like sitting around a dinner table with a, a doctor at a university and his wife is the pro vice chancellor of that university is a privileged position to be in. Mm-hmm. Right. I would not have this diagnosis if I just was going to like my normal doctor. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever mentioned it. It was a complete shock. So that's just like, it's just such a, I just don't think that medical treatment should be such a crapshoot. Mm. Yeah. It's just, galling to me that it is because I am just in a position to get the best medical care. And this has been such a protracted long process. And that's what really makes me get fired up because it's like, if I, if I can't get good medical care, what chance does like someone from a marginalized community have? Like, because there's always another reason to like brush them aside. I'm brushed aside because I'm a woman and I have this and I have this when actually like you don't actually know anything about ADHD. So how would you be able to diagnose me? Like it's all. Totally. And like, you know, what you touch on is really important because ADHD doesn't differentiate for class, privilege, you know, race, religion. It's there. I've seen it throughout all, you know, all different, you know, areas of, of communities. But what it does do is it's this barrier to entry of being able to have um, accessibility to help, to resources, and it, or it is down to money. So we are waiting on waiting lists here in the UK for two or three years. And if we can't afford a private diagnosis, we are literally just sitting in our own heads like we've done for our whole lives, kind of overthinking and gaslighting ourselves going, well, have I really or haven't I? And, you know, we thank goodness now there's books, there's podcasts, there's a lot of articles that we are probably able to self-diagnose ourselves. We're able to do checklists online. But I hear it time and time again that until we get that doctor saying to us, yes, I do believe you've had ADHD and you've had it all your life. And this is why you have struggled with X, Y, and Z. 
we then can mm. breathe that sigh of relief. We give ourselves that mm-hmm. compassion, the permission to yeah. kind of live differently or to start changing, you know, where, the way we have lived. But it takes a really long time to get there and it shouldn't be a privilege. I spoke at a conference about ADHD the other day and it was amazing because it's like, you know, the latest researchers and the most switched on psychiatrists and stuff who study ADHD. Um, And in Australia, we have a two-tiered health system. So you can get care in the public system or you can get care in the private system. And this was about adults with ADHD. And in my state of Western Australia, there was something like, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but I feel like it was like, I don't know, 34,000 adults with ADHD. And this man who was the chief psychiatrist of this state said, and how many, guess how many of those 34,000 are being treated in the public system? And people were guessing like really low numbers. And it was a hundred. So a hundred people out of that, those thousands are getting treated in the public system because there's apparently like an unwritten rule that they don't treat ADHD and adults in the public system. So you can literally only get treatment for ADHD in the private system in this state because of like the misunderstanding about severity and how much it affects your life. And like, so, you know, he was saying like, it's not a rule, like there's no rule in the public system that they don't treat it, but the practitioners have this unwritten rule in their head. So they're just like, well, it can't be that. Let's just make it something else. And so that's why so many people are getting like misdiagnosed with like bipolar and all kinds of different things because yeah. they, yeah, kind of get treatment for that. So, but but that kind of thing of like, you know, you actually will not get treated in the public system for this yeah. is disgusting. I mean, it's failing so many people and not allowing people to get the care and the the support that they deserve. And, you know, as many of us know, we know the impact that ADHD and diagnosed ADHD can have. You know, it, we've seen it. Sadly, the suicide rates are much higher in the ADHD community mm-hmm. and it can be highly debilitating and detrimental. When we get a diagnosis, it doesn't change what we've lived through. It doesn't change that, you know, it suddenly doesn't disappear. Again, if we get medication, it doesn't disappear. But what it does do is it allows you to process, reflect, give yourself the care and the compassion, the forgiveness for all the things that you didn't know. And I'd love to be able Mm -hmm. to ask you with regards to how you navigated life using strategies, success strategies that have helped you I mean, I think like a lot of people probably with ADHD, I'll be like, oh, that was a good day. What did I do that day? And then I'll be like, oh, I did this thing. Now I'm going to do that forever. And then like the next day I forget and I'm like, I don't know. Mm. So like there are obviously things that I have put in place now that allow me to like, I don't know, rely less on my memory. But I honestly, I don't, I think I could do with some ADHD coaching because, (laughs) and I, and I also think like, this is another thing that we do is we kind of just focus on the areas where we're lacking. Like, yes, I harnessed my strengths to start a business and to, you know, take this diagnosis and turn it into an extra part of my career. But also, I find it really hard. I get emails 
every day now from women who've watched that TEDx talk and they're like, I feel seen and I feel this and I feel that. And I'm like, that's great. That was me on a really, on a good day, right? Like where I felt confident. I'm very, I'm, I do things that I'm good at <laughs> and that's what makes it easy, I think. The thing that I struggle with internally is that I talk about ADHD and I, you know, I did the TEDx talk and that was obviously quite emotional. And I, if I have the time and a platform and I, you know, do speeches about it and I can give people examples of why this is so difficult so that they can understand. But then what I don't do necessarily is show those times when it's really hard because also I'm running a business. And, and, and so there's like this, also this filter still where, you know, when I'm like lying on the floor of my bedroom, just like bereft about some quote unquote failure that I've had, I'm just not the type of person who is going to put that out there. And so, yeah, I'm, I just, I guess because I do these speaking engagements and people are like, oh, that's amazing. I could never do that. And I'm like, okay, but this is the thing that I can do. Like, <laughs> and there's so many other things. So yeah, I've, the strategy thing, I don't know. I'm, I, I know the things I'm good at and I do those things and I really struggle with other things. Like I, I have a husband who does so much of the adulting and always has. And you know, that's part of the reason why I think it took so long to kind of fall apart because I don't have to go grocery shopping. And if I have to cook the dinner, the things are all there. So he puts these scaffolds in place so that we can be successful. And I said to him after I got diagnosed, like, you know, oh my God, can you believe it? And like, we we're both kind of surprised, but he was like, I've always known that, that you're like this and I love you. He's like, I wasn't under any you know, illusion when we got married that you were all of a sudden going to start doing all these things. <laughs> but we just have this understanding of like, these are the things that he's good at. And these are the things that I'm good at. And that's our strategy <laughs> is yeah. like, David does that stuff. And Martha does this stuff. And that works for us. For people that don't have a supportive partner, or even worse, a partner who's like, you know, you're using this as an excuse, like, why can't you just do it? It would be just so devastating. Like if I had a different husband, I think my life would be so much worse yeah. than it is. Cause I have support. I have someone who, you know, when I'm like, I can't figure out what we're going to have for dinner. He's like, okay. Like, you know, I fed the children. I don't know what we're going to eat. And he's like, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't resonate more with all that you're saying because I have exactly the same situation where we do we do share a lot of, of the stuff, the household stuff. But, you know, something I've talked about before is that it's the old conditioning of the woman, of the mother. And if we can't do some of the adulting stuff, which we feel that we're not good at it, we berate ourselves and we hone in on that. And, and again, I, you know, I always talk about my husband and he's like, Mr. Laundry, he's the one that changes the bed, kids' bed sheets. And he he does that. I mean, I do all the grocery shopping, I do all the cooking, I do a lot of stuff behind the scenes, but he does pick up the pieces. Um, definitely. Mm -hmm. We were only talking about it last night that he is 
the tax person. And I, I always worry, I mean, God forbid, if something happens, like financially, I always think I I don't know what I would do because he does all those little things. He remembers when to do, he, you know, tells me you need to hand in your, you know, your tax returns and helps yeah. me with all of that. Yeah. And that's scary, I think, because when we feel that there's someone there scaffolding us, no matter how many strengths we may have, and when we and we do have a lot of strengths, but for me, I mm. always hone in on, I can't do this and I can't do that. Mm. And I don't worry about like the kids' beds being changed because that will happen. And if it doesn't get changed for two weeks, I don't really care. But what yeah. I do care about is the really big adulty stuff that he still mm-hmm. kind of helps me with. So mm. it's just an awareness, isn't it? It's just sending ourselves some love and um, recognizing. But he is so good at flipping the script to me and saying, but if it wasn't for you, there wouldn't be food in the fridge and there wouldn't be food on the table every night. Like every night I think about dinner for four kids and then what we're going to eat. And he, yeah, so he, he, I just see that as just like, that's just something I'm good at and I just do. But for him, he really struggles with, with anything like that. So maybe this is just a call for any of us listening that loves to hone in on all the stuff that we can't do. Because again, mm. that is our default mode network. Um, Dr. Halliwell talks about this a lot, that we have yeah. this DMN that is very powerful and is often drives everything. So we are prone to more criticism, self-criticism, negativity bias. We look for the the, the bad stuff. And we have to kind of flip it and be like, right, where's the good stuff? Like, what am I good at? Where are the strengths? Where can I show up in the world that is going to really like illuminate me and what I do? And that is where I, especially with the coaching that I do with women, they come to me and go, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm failing at that. And I've started another business. And then then I kind of like, tell me what you're good at. Tell me all the things you enjoy. Where do you find that, you know, creativity? And very slowly I see this shift. Yeah, it's also like what each person values, right? Like mm-hmm. my, so I have the conversations with our kids, the, the you know, the really challenging conversations. Yeah. And I do a lot of the work of like making sure that, you know, their, you know, their self-esteem is looked after. Yeah. And a lot of like the language and the way that we speak to our kids is very different to the way that we were both raised um, and sort of trying to acknowledge our children's personhood and autonomy and, you know, respect them as humans rather than just like tiny adults. Mm-hmm. And so he, he'll say to me like the stuff that I do, he says, the stuff that he does is like important day to day, but the stuff that I'm good at is important for like forming their entire self image, right? And he's like, what you do is so much more important. And I'm like, yeah, but also eating is important. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm focused on like, you know, are they like confident and, you know, do they feel like autonomy over their own bodies and all this kind of stuff? And and he's like, that's so important because I wouldn't even think of that. And I'm like, yeah. And if it were just me, we would be like starving. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, totally. I mean, yeah, exactly the same. I'm just interrupting today's podcast to let you know the ADHD hormone series has been live now for a month. And I am so excited to see how many of you have downloaded it. I'm delighted 
because this was all about helping you empower and advocate for yourselves to support yourself, to learn and to create more awareness around your different cycles, why different things have been showing up as a pattern through your life, whether that's migraines, PMDD, low mood, lower energy, endometriosis, really anything to do with hormonal fluctuations and why they've been so exacerbated by probably your undiagnosed ADHD. So I've interviewed so many different experts and specialists who not only understand women's health, gut issues, sleep, energy, breath work, lifestyle, nutrition, all these different things, hormones, but also understand all of this through the lens of neurodivergence. Now, as we speak, I am recording new interviews with different specialists. I've got an ADHD midwife. I've got another GP who specializes in self-compassion. I've got a nutritionist who's written a book specifically about brain health and ADHD. So this is the most up-to-date, most specialized knowledge that I can find to help you make those connections between hormones and ADHD. So if you haven't downloaded it yet, even if it's not for you and it's for a loved one, it's for a daughter, granddaughter, niece, friend, I want you to be able to get all this information. Now, the launch price is what it is right now, but as I update the series and put in new content and resources, the price is going to go up. But if you buy right now at the launch price, you'll be able to lock in and every time it's updated, the price won't change and this is what you'll get. Continually updates and new information coming through. So all the information is on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. It's also in the show notes of today's episode. And if you are desperate for answers, you've been dismissed, you've been invalidated, you've been passed from pillar to post, I promise you in this hormone series, you will start getting those answers and you'll be able to start advocating yourself and asking for what you need. Now back to today's episode. Something that I wanted to talk to you about was we talk about, you know, failure is a bad thing. And with ADHD, many of us have perhaps tried things and without the acknowledgement and the awareness of an ADHD diagnosis, we may have kept going, well, I should be working in this field. I should be doing this. Um, And then I personally think universally, it keeps like slamming the door in our face because it wants us to tap into our strengths. It wants us to kind of like really live with more ease and joy and effortlessness. But we, again, kind of go back to those shoulds of like, this is what I really should be doing to be, you know, a breadwinner, Mm -hmm. or this is what I should be doing Mm -hmm. because I went to law school. So I really should be a lawyer or whatever. How do you, how do you see failure now that you have an ADHD lens and what can we learn from it? Do you think? It's a really interesting question because I have only actually verbalized this recently, but I have long had this kind of understanding that, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to go to university and I did. And then I wanted to become a teacher and I did. And I wanted to, I think deep down, I've always had this idea of like, all of this stuff has gone really well for you. And that means you're in for it. And so in my sort of negative fatalistic view, I can get to a place in my head where I'm like, well, you thought that you were in for it this whole time and now you're getting it. Like now you're having a hard time. So I don't want to be like, I can't speak to failure because I've never failed. I have, but like the, in the big things, the like, you know, societally recognized indicators for success, I have done fine. 
And, and so for me, that's actually just like was another barrier to getting a diagnosis because I was able to do all of those things, the hard things, but I couldn't do the easy things. So the failures for me are like, oh, I lost a 35 liter tub or like I mixed up the time for this thing or I told somebody that I could do this thing and I forgot that I had this. So it's like these micro failures that I like I describe ADHD as like death by a thousand cuts. And so, you know, if when I was a teacher, I was like, you know, I was there every day and I was doing a great job and I always had a great outfit on and I was doing all of the things. But then, you know, just having these little sort of incidental failures, quote unquote, that like take you through the whole day that make you understand that like, even though you can do all these hard things, you're still a bit shit. Yeah. So the for me, it hasn't been a matter of like, I started, tried to start a business and it failed. But it's a matter of like, I tried to go to the grocery store for like food that we needed this week. And all I came out with was like a head of lettuce and some batteries. Mm-hmm. Like that's, <laughs> that's the failure. And so yeah, those really add up for yeah. me. And then I guess like the understanding that I have ADHD did allow me to be like more compassionate and and like naming things gives you power over them. But I still feel those failures like all the time. But people kind of look at me and go like, well, she's not a failure. She's done this, this and this. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't like go to the grocery store or cook something. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's that it almost kind of the lack of sort of big failure really overshadows like the little feeling of failure that's just like again and again and again when you kind of have this yeah I mean I love that definition of a death by a thousand cuts because like you say it will be the compounding layers the stuff that we've sort of take on um from kids you know whether we've forgotten to hand something in or we um you know, handwriting, or we forget things for school, like all sorts of different things. And then they just keep going, or we we forget something at work. And that just kind of just comes back to us the whole time. It's like almost like tiny traumas that um, I'm not saying they have the same impact. But if you think about the constant layering and layering that we're holding on to in in our nervous system, I I believe that's very much why so many of us show up with, you know, I think you mentioned before, stomach conditions, migraines, um, autoimmune issues, because we hold so much in our nervous system because Mm. of the masking. I mean, just masking alone is exhausting. And just having Mm. the awareness that something's wrong or something's different, but we can't articulate it. And we don't know why our memory is the way it is. And yeah. You know, going back to that example at the beginning when, you you know, you forgot the the tub, the big tub that you've gone for. The amount of times that I've gone to the supermarket for one thing and come out with loads of other things and forgotten that one thing that I've gone to the supermarket for. Yeah. And now I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. But before I was like, what is wrong with you? Like, what is wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. And like, why can everybody else do this? Mm-hmm. I'm smart. Why mm-hmm. can't I do this? And it is that, like, I saw something online ages ago that was like, living with undiagnosed ADHD is traumatic. Yeah. Like, it is significant. And I really don't believe in sort of, 
I really believe that everyone is entitled to their experience. I, I acknowledge that there are people with unimaginable traumas and I really, I empathize and I obviously wouldn't want that for myself or for anybody. And also the thing that is traumatic to a person is traumatic to that person, mm-hmm. regardless of if someone else has it worse, right? So going through life and being hypervigilant because you are terrified that you're going to make a mistake and then every time making a mistake yeah. <laughs> is is traumatic. And yeah, like it's, there are definitely quote unquote worse traumas or, you know, things that are more traumatic, definitely. But like for each person, they are traumatized by that thing, regardless of if someone else has it worse. It just doesn't make it any better if someone has it worse. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I remember I read um, Dr. Edith Eager's um, book. I don't know if you know about her, but she's a Holocaust survivor. um, And she's Mm. amazing, amazing woman. She's in her sort of late 90s now, still working as a psychotherapist. um, And she's written... um, two books but the first one was called the choice and she basically yeah. talks about how she made a choice to move um you know in the concentration camps and and then you know her decision to just stay in her head and to keep leaning in her strengths but what as she grew up and she requalified to be a psychotherapist people would come to her and say how can I tell you my perceived trauma because you're a holocaust survivor and you lost your whole yeah. family in the holocaust And she was like, but my trauma is my trauma and your trauma is your trauma. And you can't, it's not a competition. So if our body is holding on to trauma, there's trauma there. And whether that's because we've had spent our whole teenage years hypervigilant, highly anxious, not understanding ourselves, that doesn't mean it's not, you know, worthy. So I think it's really powerful to be able to have this conversation because I know there's a lot of people living um, who tell me that they have ongoing chronic pain and they have migraines and stomach issues and they don't understand why they say you know on the outside things are okay but then when we when we know what we've absorbed over life especially when it's like what is wrong with me I don't understand then we get the diagnosis and then very often what happens is that we can then work through we can process and we're able to recognize what we can let go of maybe what we need to work on more and then we kind of go right okay i can i can release this now i can surrender to it because it's not going anywhere i now know it's the adhd and i can move forwards with more recognition of how I want to live my life like I now know that I don't want to work in this environment I now know that I thrive better in this environment and I have a book to tell me that this is why and I have a a podcast that can explain to me this is how my brain works and this is why Mm. I feel um contained and oppressed and all the things so I just I just want to thank you for explaining that so well and also to to finish off I wanted to maybe ask you what strengths do you want to keep leaning into as you get older now um you know you talk about being an amazing um you'd like to model to your children how to help themselves with their own mental well-being and what what is moving you like what is that the passion that's within you that you want to move forwards now that you have a lot more awareness of what was undiagnosed ADHD yeah, I th- like I think the communication has always been a strength of mine. Um and I am sort of leaning into that more 
but like what I'm trying to do with my kids, for example, is show them that like, I'm trying to help you emotionally regulate and I am dysregulated, right? And so like together there are these actions we can take that will maybe help us to feel more um, balanced. Mm -hmm. And something that I've really been trying to work on is like my littlest child has ADHD and very high anxiety. And, you know, I, and I like, I'm not proud of this, but like, I used to look at them sometimes and think that is the type of child I did not want. Like that child that's falling all over the place and, you know, just being unmanageable. Um, And what I've learned through therapy is that expectation that a five-year-old, four-year-old, three-year-old child will be, you know, ruly or, you know, under control is a result of my parenting, where we care a lot about what other people think and behaving in the right way. So when my child's doctor said they've got um, high anxiety, and I realized, oh, it's not behavior. It's like their reaction to the situation. They don't know what to do, right? And and so um, their name is Will. And, and they aren't being bad. They're overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And, and so really leaning into like that understanding and being able to have compassion for myself and the way that I know I feel sometimes and then extending that compassion to my children is something that I'm really working on. Like, I don't know, this is probably actually a question you can help me with, but like we were, um, my older son, Henry, I have, you know, he's got jobs that he needs to do before he goes to bed or whatever. And, and he, I asked him to clean up his stuff on his floor and he was like, yep. And and then I went in and he was like on his bed reading. And so I'm like, okay, so has he forgotten? Is this ADHD or is this like willful? Like he didn't, you know, he didn't do it. And so it just becomes like just another thing to agonize over because like what I want to do is just give him shit for not doing the thing. And then I'm like, oh, but he has inattentive ADHD. So like, who knows if that instruction even went in and who knows if he even, like he left and went to the bathroom and came back. So like he went through a doorway twice. So that thing is probably just like gone from his mind. So trying to get him to understand that like, you don't have to have shame around not doing it, but how do we like get, it's so hard because there are things that need to be done. Mm -hmm. So kind of getting to a point where like we can get the things done that need to be done without assigning like value to a person based on their ability to do that thing is so hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in a sense, like I'm, that's what I'm focusing on, I think is because we're, you know, we're having obviously some difficulties with our kids and, and, you know, maybe I'm overcomplicating it. But I'm like, I just am trying really hard to be supportive of them and also be supportive of my own needs. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the thing that I'm yeah, trying to lean into is like, 
I guess it's okay that you don't know what to do. And like, I think the fact that I'm thinking about it is an indication that like, you know, maybe I'm an okay parent. So trying to realize the things that are going well and try to focus less on the things that are challenging, I think is kind of what I'm focusing on at the moment. Yeah. I don't know if that's a strength I'm leaning into, but that's what I'm really struggling with right now. Yeah, it is. And I, yeah, I extend my compassion because I'm very similar and we, you know, having kids as well with ADHD is really triggering because it kind of reflects back to you yeah. all the stuff that you don't do yeah. and can't do and struggled with. And it's really challenging as a parent to 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 be there and have a, have more awareness now, you know, now that we have a diagnosis, but also see how it shows up in our kids and not mm. make them feel bad for the stuff that they don't do like the same day every day it's like Groundhog Day my kids leave their towels and their clothes all over their floor and yeah it's I could just go crazy every day and I don't and I just pick them up and I think what am I doing am I enabling them you know one day yes. I'm not going to be there picking up their towel and their clothes I'm not going to yeah. be making them sit down and have something to eat and drink but at the same time while I can help them I want to um do I shame them for not being able to do all the things that I want them to be doing, like keeping their bedrooms tidy? Mm. I don't know. I think the only thing that we can do is just work with what we've got, work with you know the resources yeah. that we've got and the knowledge that we have and probably know that no matter what, no matter how much work we do and read and everything, like we can, there's always going to be things that we're going to fail at. There's always going to be things oh, that God. we could do better with. And yeah. we just hope that the love that we show them and the support that we show them is enough. I, I always mm. come back to like, I don't hope for anything more than giving my kids resilience and strength to be able to deal with life's challenges because I can't take away, I can't control their challenges and I can't control what's going to yeah. happen to them. So the only thing I want to be able to give them is to know that they're loved, to know that no matter what, everything is unconditional and to know that, they have some it's resilience if I'm not around and then they can pick mm. up the pieces of, of whatever happens and move forwards with love and compassion. Yeah. The thing that just came into my head when you were talking about the towels, like, and reminded me of the conversation about like a partner, right? Because what you're teaching your child when you're picking up their towels is the fact that you didn't pick up your towel doesn't make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you lazy. And you are worthy of somebody who will just come and do it because they're good at that thing, right? So it could be, you know, if we look at it one way, yeah, maybe we're enabling them to never pick up their own towels. Or maybe we're empowering them to go, I'm good at these things mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm getting affirmation for every day. And, you know, maybe one day they'll either grow up and realize that their towels stink if they, you know, it might become important to them that their towels don't stink at some point and then they'll hang them up or they'll, if they meet a partner and they'll accept the act of love that is picking up their towels mm -hmm. because that person will see the good that they bring to the relationship as well. So it's a, I, I mean, maybe the gift is like, yeah, not assigning, uh, you know, you're Probably, lazy or yeah. you're absent-minded or you're whatever, but celebrating the things that they are good at 
because they're worthy of having somebody help them with yeah. the things that they're not good at. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just remember the words of lazy, you're a slob, you're untidy, you can't keep your room um, tidy, what's wrong with you? Look at the state that you're living in. Like that narrative can play over. So I kind of hold myself back and I'm telling you this now, I'm not a perfect parent and I have said those things to my kids. My emotional dysregulation goes to like zero to a hundred, depending on where I am, what I've been doing that day, anything. It's all these little factors. And I can walk into a room and I see the towel and the clothes on the floor and the mess and the rubbish and the the crisp packets that they've just not bothered to put in the bin and I lose my shit I really do but then I have other days where things are a bit calmer within me and I go in I go right I put the crisp in crisp packet in the bin I'll pick up the stuff I'm going to walk out and I'm just going to say really calmly it would be really helpful to me if you could just keep an eye on the stuff in your room but I just think maybe it's just a recognition that we're all learning on the job and none of us are perfect. And I hope that they'll still turn out, you know, good people with lots of resilience and um, and recognition that, for you know, that they should have self-compassion for themselves. And all the stuff that I've learned in my like late 30s and early 40s, yeah. I want them to be able to have accessibility at a much younger age. So, yeah. Yeah. I wish I, there, there's, there's no clicker answers, but from one mum to yeah. an, um, another mum, let's, uh, yeah, hopefully send each other love and things may get easier. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's really tricky. And yeah, you second guess everything that you do. And um, it's, yeah, I've, I feel the same way. <laughs> Well, Martha, thank you so much um, for joining me today. I, I know we've gone sort of gone a bit of a all round the houses, but I really enjoy this type of conversation because it's it's real life, and we you know we get to p- unpick things that are challenging, and also recognise the stuff that um, is working for us, and that we can um, keep building on and growing on, and use those, those as the foundations to thrive um, and to live alongside our ADHD as well. So just want to thank you for your yeah. honesty and your vulnerability and sharing your stories as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. What a treat. I always love, it's always nice to talk to somebody else who has ADHD because like, it's just an understanding. Like, it's like, oh, you know how like this happens? And they're like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't feel like you have to explain or so yeah. it's it's really nice to have conversations like this. It's nice for me too. Oh, well, thank you, Martha. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it's helped guide you towards some further self-healing, self-exploration, and most importantly, self-acceptance. And if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work, such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions, connecting with other like-minded women and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.